Cradleine Network. There's a place in your heart, and I know that it is love. And this place came as bright as a my name is Conrad, and this is the 261st episode of Space Spinner 2000 Podcast. We try to make sense of the UK's own galaxy's greatest comic, 2000 AD, one month of progs at a time. But this week we're taking a break from our usual weekly progs to cover the 1993-2000 AD yearbook. Like annuals, yearbooks are dated for the year after they come out in, and this is the second 2000 AD yearbook and 16th 2000 AD annual type document. <laughs> this time we're rolling out with a bunch of theoretically art-themed stories featuring Durham Red, Robo Hunter, Indigo Prime, Big Spartan, Brigand Doom, Rogue Trooper, and the Strontium Dogs, as well as a reality-bending Dread story and some classic slain action. The price of the annual has stayed steady this year at £5.95, but enough of this backstory... Because I'm excited about my guest for the show, Dave, the monarch of to the 2080 forums. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back. And yes, you're very right about us being th- theoretically about art, because not all of them is about art. <laughs> I mean, you know, I feel like, especially with these annual themes, many of them are um, just sort of like vague... <laughs> like just they're like maybe like if there's a if there's a tharg um uh, strip then that will have the theme but otherwise it's very catch as catch can although there are, there are some art ones in here for sure mm-hmm. but also some some definitely not art ones as well. <laughs> definitely <laughs> all right so be a little behind the scenes here. You specifically requested this yearbook, like you uh, you contacted me and said, "Hey, I want to do the '93 yearbook, and I want to know why you chose this one. What drew you to this yearbook here?" Two reasons. First one is very minor, and it's because of the Rogue Trooper story in this episode. But we'll get to that Ooh. eventually at some point. Indeed. But the more important one is this was my last ever 2000 AD yearbook. Ah, sort of an end of end of your um, this, of of your collection period here. You you you, you tapped out ninety two. Oh no, I tapped out. I technically tapped out ninety three, but this was the last annual that I did get, and there's a mm-hmm. reason for that. And uh, he kind of had his thirtieth anniversary this year, so yeah, it was Sonic the Hedgehog's fault that I quit the two thousand AD. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> you see, uh, a year after this came out, uh, Sonic the Comic came out, which uh, mm-hmm. was our big uh, crossover Sonic the Hedgehog comic for the UK, which had comic strips based on Sonic the Hedgehog and other Sega stuff. And like Sonic was the big thing in 1993, because that was when the time sure, Sonic 2 came out, and the comic came out, lots of books and other stuff and it was just huge and unfortunately I was one of the people that got caught up in it so I just could not afford 2000 AD anymore <laughs> so my last <laughs> 2000 AD was around about 870-ish and then I okay yeah yeah we're good yeah so in, mm-hmm. in 93 so, and then, then I did not come back until 
Nicolai Dante maybe. So that was quite that was quite a I saw it in in the thousand in like the thousands or eleven hundreds. Yeah. I was pretty much just correcting uh, Sonic comic. <laughs> <laughs> And that's fine. I mean, I, we, we've definitely seen crossover with the Sonic comic um, in 2000 AD, just in terms of creatives and stuff like that. I know uh, soon we'll be reading the story Wireheads, which was written by um, Mark Eels, I want to say, who wrote pretty extensively in the early days of, of the UK Sonic comic. Um, and I think... Not just that. There's, there's a reason you won't see much of Casanova again after the current atrocity of Robo Hunter that you're doing at the moment, because he moves to he moves to Sonic to come oh, as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's hard to it. Like I don't want to begrudge anybody making a paycheck. For the record, like you know, it's the it's a it's a fact that like we're entering a point where these video games are very much a. Um, you know, a big part of the market and, and and appealing to video gamers is hard. You know, it's hard to disagree with. You know, and I also know just from like a couple podcasts I listen to that are about weird internet things that there's just a huge and terrifying Sonic <laughs> subculture. <laughs> you know, on, I, on, on I, the web, I, I, mean, I will not lie. I, I used to be I, part I, of I, it, I, so I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I feel like I'm like I think I was like twelve, so I might have been a little bit too old, like just on the cusp of it or something like that. I guess where I was maybe too trying to be too of cool course. for it or something, but I definitely recognize it. Like I would, I would suggest everybody listening to this going on Google Image Search and searching uh, your name, the Hedgehog, and seeing what kind of uh, fan art shows up. Something will show up. They're like there will be, unless you've got a really weird name, your he- like a, a Hedgehog with your name will show up in there. There's there, there's certainly a Conrad the Hedgehog. Who I think is a is pink, as I recall, but it's a whole thing. There's also a fantastic uh, podcast that I listen to that's just all about the UK Sonic comic pod. Sonic comic and it's really really good and do you want me to tell you a little bit of trivia about that comic before we move on to what we're supposed to be recording Mark Miller did Sonic the Hedgehog comic strips and Streets of Rage comic strips for the the Sonic comic Mark Miller did Sonic (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean, Mark Miller's like 20, 22. Like we talk, like we'll talk about it in the annual it's, here. He's just a kid, insane. you know. You don't, you, you aren't, you, you, you aren't born writing, having written Marvel Civil War, you know, <laughs> or whatever. You know? It's absolutely not. <laughs> like you gotta, you gotta start somewhere, and like especially in comics, you're going to write these licensed stuff. I mean, I can't poo-poo anything because I know for me. My entry into reading comics and actually like like low key what um got me reading things in general like inspired me to literacy almost was as a kid reading these old comics that were based on like the TV show and cartoon show Alf <laughs> like the uh, the Alien or whatever um like like that sitcom they had a tie in comic. And I read that when I was like six or something, and it's something that helped me learn to read comics and learn to read, basically. So anybody reading licensed stuff or working in licensed stuff, like I, I you know, I, I, I won't throw any 
I won't throw too much shade because but, like it's um you know it's important to, it's important for these kids. These kids got to read things, you know, and I feel like we can be too down on 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 working on kids stuff in 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 the hobby of comics just because we forget you know because we all grow up to be bitter old men and forget about <laughs> what got but, us into it i guess but yeah some people get chased off of 2000 AD during this time due to some very dodgy scripting but i as a 10 year old with because of sonic the hedgehog <laughs> <laughs> i mean I, yeah i think that's solid honestly like you know it's because that's just moving from one comic to the next that better serves your purposes you know i mean i i do think that i mean just talking about what what kids read like i don't know if a 10 year old is actually well served by 2000 ad in these days you know like it's full of you know we're getting so much more adult and edgy about things that i mean i'm still surprised i wasn't popped by killing time back in the day because I was only eight when I first read that <laughs> yeah exactly yeah no there's just like I mean like in uh you know the, yeah the, you know John Smith is out and about like give, making sure you get this oh, body boy, horror oh, basically boy, we'll at all times you know? <laughs> <laughs> like he'll he'll mess you up you know and I feel like you know that's sort of what and that's what they're going for, you know, that and like, you know, we're increasingly seeing the comic become more violent and, you know, we're getting hints of hints of nudity and things like that. It's sort of this stuff that's uh, for mature readers in the like, you know, like this stuff would be rated R or whatever else, you know. I mean, I feel 2000 AD, I guess, stays more PG-13 while the magazine becomes full R rated, but it's still like a whole thing. But we're, you know, we're making our way. <laughs> oh boy, oh boy, I can't, I, I can't imagine my mum being pleased if I had gotten the magazine at the time because I only really got the magazine for the Judgment Day crossover and I never carried on with it really until much later. But I can only imagine what my parents would have been like if I actually bought that when I was younger. I know we've definitely got some. I feel like we've got a few more John Hinklinton things coming up in the in the early in early volume two of the magazine that I'm sort of gritting my teeth for in terms of uh, weirdness. And then you know, eventually we'll just just have full preacher reprints, which are you know can get pretty spicy as you know as we go through. But oh man, yeah, exciting times, exciting future, exciting present as we sort of again. Now, as we now are in the in in the thick of the nineties here on Space Spinner, you know, very exciting time. So presumably, you and Fox are a teeny little bit ahead of where we currently are as far as what I listened to yesterday. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, as we're as we're you know for context, as we go to this <laughs> annual, we're a little bit ahead. So we've just fin you know. Um, this episode will come out right after Prague 799, so right after the end of Judgment Day. Um, we've in, in in the comics we've just finished a round of uh, Bradley's bedtime stories. Zenith Phase Four is underway. Everyone fucking dies in Zenith Phase Four. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, listen, everybody like I don't want to spoil it. You know, every, everybody does die, but it's not as bad as it looks. Um, you know, doesn't screw your career up the way it does in the olden days, right? Um, and then we're also in the middle of a of a Casanova's um, drawn Miller written oh. uh, Robo Hunter story, The Return to Virtus. 
You know, I, I didn't like it at the time, but with context yeah, of actually reading all the Sam Swade stories, I hate it even more now. <laughs> I gotta, I'll, I'll go back an episode or two and say that one of my favorite lines that I've said recently on this show is, uh, I regret to inform you that Mark Miller has written, ha, ha, has read the back issues of, uh, Robo Hunter. I, you know, you know, I, I, you know, what I actually think happened with that. Okay. I think the current editor of 2000 AD, uh, I can't, I think it's, it was still John Tomlinson at the time, I think, uh, probably gave Mark Miller, here's Robo Hunter, it's an old thing, uh, gave him some names and some story beats, but nothing else other than that. And that's how we get Cutie mm-hmm. back and how the cliffhanger of the first story happened. And then as he was writing the second one, the Escape from New York ripoff, maybe he went back and read Verdus and he was like, hmm, I can destroy this. And that's how we got the third one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like we are very much, um, like, yeah, like this one, re- this one did feel like it was sort of, yeah, gets increased. Because I know in Thrill Power Overload, Overload Miller said that he hadn't read any Robo Hunter when he started writing it, and we're still in um, we're still in uh, Richard Burton's uh, tenure uh, for for editor here. It's uh, Burton and uh, Mackenzie my, as the editors. My favorite thing from Phil Power Overload is that when John Wagner and Alan Grant saw what Mark Miller was doing, they said, "Stop this! Stop this right now!" But it was too late. He'd already written more. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I'm. I gotta, yeah, you know, we're we're also pretty down on um on this concurrent Robo Hunter um, storyline. But listen, let's we can talk about that more as we get to it. I guess. Yeah, we've, I think we've now got, we've got a, to, we've got a pretty bad Robo Hunter coming up soon. So <laughs> yeah, we can jump jump into this into this annual or yearbook. You know what I'm talking about. Um, so the cover, like the previous yearbook, and I guess all the yearbooks, we've got one of these. Uh, it's a soft cover, and this one it's another fold-out cover. The theme of the year is, like I said, uh, but is it art, basically? And we've got this big, uh, like quadruple-sized portrait, uh, a sculpture garden of 2008. On the main cover, there's Tharg. Uh, chiseling a sculpture of uh, a, you, a, a, a bust you, you of bread. You and Foxy's on the cut front as well. Listen, <laughs> I have not. Listen, I'm not even. I'm maybe going to do it now because again, we're going to get <laughs> going to get some W's coming in here. But um, yeah, Walter's on the side, and then there's a bunch of 2080 characters as, as famous sculptures. There's Anderson as Venus de Milo and an incorrect badge. I'll have you know because their badge says Anderson instead of Psy. You know, whatever. Um, there's a Dred's body at, in the pose of Michelangelo's David, Friday as the, uh, Discobulus of Myron, Sam Slade as Rodan's the Thinker, Slain as Perseus, and then smaller statues of Durham Red, Brigand Doom, and some kind of fat guy that I don't recognize, I guess. Yeah, la- random fatty in the bottom, and I don't get it, because I don't think fatty show up at all in this. I don't. No, no, it's just like it's just sort of a random duty. Yeah, I guess that is that a belly wheel? That's I thought it might it might have been a wine jug, but it could be a belly wheel as well, sort of down there. But yeah, just sort of a random guy, just sort of doing some 
art poses, I guess. Um, but yeah, um, anyway, then the inside front uh, fold-out cover has the table of contents projected on the back of a citizen being mugged, as well as the, um, which is part of the start of Thrill One, Judge Dread. <laughs> Just jumps into it. Script robot, Alan Grant and Tony Luke, art robot, Brett, art robots, Brett Ewins and Jim McCarthy, letting robot Gordon Robson. Uh, so Tony Luke is uh, what you know has been writing with Alan Grant a bit. They wrote the uh, the story in the Dread Mega Special this year. Um, though I think of him more as being the guy who took the pictures for the Nemesis, the Warlock photo stories back in the day. It's always nice to see Brett Ewan's work. Um, he also did a Rogue Trooper in the Sci-Fi Special this year, so it looks like he's just doing some um, special work, I guess. Um, and I should say that, like, this is the first one, but for some re- like, I don't know what happened, but Gordon Robson letters every story in this annual. Like, every single, well, ex- except for the reprint, but otherwise they're all Gordon Robson lettering, which is weird to me. Like, I don't know what's going on with that. I tried to look in his blog a little bit, but couldn't really find it. Like, I'd, I gotta, you know, maybe I should just go on the, I, I should have, like, tried to ask him or something and just been like, is this like a, was this a dig? Like, or something like that? Because he's definitely not working in the end, the progs all that much. If, if I was willing to make a guess, and this is just a guess, so don't take it with salt, I think maybe some of the normal writers are working on some of uh, Fleetway's other comics that were starting in about the time, because, as I said, uh, Sonic was starting in a year's time, but also there was the Red Dwarfs magazine, which was starting in mm-hmm. about this time as well. Ah, uh, yes, that's right. Yeah, we've seen, we've definitely seen ads for that in the course of nerve centers and stuff like that. Oh, man, it's that season five Red Dwarf, whatever, doing all this stuff. Um but back to the mugging. The citizen has no money, but before anything can actually happen, some judges arrive. Kind of, because it's definitely <laughs> judges Dredd and Anderson and a red shirt judge, but their uniforms are very different. They got cloaks and weird shoulder pads. Dredd's helmet has Batman ears, and Anderson's wearing some kind of crown. He calls her Executioner Anderson. Her uniform has uh, has stars on the boobs. <laughs> and she... I- oh, go ahead. I, I did I did not notice that the red shirt judge literally has a red shirt on. <laughs> I did not notice that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> they don't even say his name, I think. He's very much just sort of shows up randomly. Um or, or or doesn't really get involved in the story. She calls Dread High Lord Dread. And then when this, and then, uh, uh, z- uh, mind zaps the muggers. And when the citizen touches the, t- touches dread, thanking him, um, he also gets killed, gets set on fire and killed. It's crazy. <laughs> Nearby are Anderson and dread catch a side flash of this whole thing and go and, and ride over, finding their doppelgangers. Bat Dread uh, claims diplomatic immunity, like Lethal Weapon 2, and says they're from an alternate reality called Judda City 1, and they're here on a mission. But when Dread tries to arrest them, as you do, because, you know, they, they, they did kill some folks, and they're vigilantes, basically, uh, they just teleport away, saying that they'll speak to the organ grinder, not the monkeys. Oh, dip. That's an insult. Savage. <laughs> burn um dread and anderson ride off warning the grand hall of justice but the judge lords are already there talking to chief magruder they say 
They're from Dimension 717, and I should mention that that's, of course, very close to the number of the official Marvel Comics reality, which is 616. That's for the comics. I mean, and you can totally tell that I think Grant was doing American work at this time. He was the, one of the main writers of Batman, I think. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, he'd actually finished his Batman run by 92, I believe. But, you know, they'd also done the Batman crossover and all that stuff. And I feel like we're definitely poking some fun at American comics in both the this dialogue and, like, the look of this uh, Batman dread and stuff like that, for sure. I should mention that the, that M- the MCU is Earth 199,999, whatever. Um, but so High Lord Dredd explains that in their world, the judges rule supreme, which I mean, they do in this world as well, for the record, but there's sort of a different level of supremacy. Um, in that version of Mega City One, Morton Judd stayed in power, meaning that now the Judda rule the world. Even thinking of crime is illegal. Um, And with their powers, we learned they were able to just instantly defeat their alternate version of the Dark Judges, like, instantly. And I kind of – I like this flash of these alternate Dark Judges we see with their weird pointy helmets and stuff like that. Judge Drag, Judge Skull, and I can't quite see the other one because I think the scan's not exactly amazing, so I can't see the fourth one. Yeah. No, it's kind of it's kind of blurry. Maybe Judge Hate or Judge Drong would make sense for drag or something. I don't know, but um, Strom, something like that. Um, but so ne- the the Judds have now traveled from world to world with their message of fascism, and they offer Magruder, who we weirdly mostly only see in shadow. So you like, and Ewan's has kind of drawn her as a more classic version of Magruder. So there's no chin whiskers or anything like that on this one. Though we do, yeah, that's one. This one doesn't look like Wazel Gummidge at all. It's weird. Mm-mm. No, yeah, it's, it's more of a of a traditional Magruder from like the days of like fungus and sort of post-apocalypse war and stuff like that. And her face is all in shadow. And instead of accepting a Lord Dread's offer, she bites his finger. <laughs> um, and so, listen, bad times outside her office. Our uh, Dread and Anderson make a plan. She heads down to the Siamp in the vaults of the Hall of Justice as Dread bursts in. Magruder hits the deck as the judges open fire, and Anderson, with the Siamp in place, hits the Psy Juice. The Judge Lords have advanced force fields, so the bullets do nothing. But suddenly, Dread morphs into some kind of giant monster judge. And it's so big and terrifying that the Judge Lords try to teleport away and their shields drop. And then that causes Dread to toss a grenade after them. And so they sort of blow up mid-teleportation. And that's it. And we will never see them again. (laughs) They're done. First of two... Like teleportation <laughs> explosions in this special. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so much for them. Later, Anderson bandages, bandages Dread, but plays coy about what she did to scare the Judda off. Ooh, that would be telling. I don't know. He doesn't seem that scary, I guess, in comparison to the, to, to the Judda, I suppose. But... I feel like the, the the big money in this story is more just checking out these alternate um, Dread and Anderson designs, basically. Like this Batman Dread, this evil witch queen um, Anderson, stuff like that. That's sort of the what we're here for in this one. It sure does feel like an American Judge Dread story. Foreshadowing in 1995. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh man, I don't even know. I don't even know what you're talking about. So I guess we'll we'll, we'll all find out together. Um, oh god, DC Comics, why? <laughs> I think they're actually collecting those, as I recall. So you know, they coming. are. It may. I I don't know why, but they are. <laughs> I mean, I like listen as somebody who has sort of taken. You know, it been been, been been cursed by supernatural forces to have to talk about all this stuff. I appreciate it being available legally. Like, it's nice, you know, as opposed to, like, I'll, I'll happily buy something as opposed to sort of searching weird corners of the dark web. You know how hard it is to find torrents of British comics? It's difficult. I cannot argue that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like, it's very, like, I don't know what. I'm going to have to figure out how we're going to cover that, honestly. Like, that could be a marathon or sort of maybe something between Big Meg Ones or something like that. Oh, God. Trying to, oh, find, God. Trying, trying to find some ego to follow with the way he goes, there, boys, is a pain in the backside. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Listen, <laughs> I've been trying to. Yeah. Well, because, like, Eagle's tough just because there's sort of several <laughs> Eagle publications as well, you know, <laughs> so it sort of blends together. It's like when I tried to find Tornado, it's like, do you want this? No, no, I, I need I need a different Tornado comic. Thank you. Um, anyway, also Revolver. Like, these are names that get used a lot for comics for some, or for magazines and stuff. I don't even I don't even think I've ever read Revolver before. Someday we'll all find a way to read it together. I swear to God. Like, I'm going <laughs> to – we're going to talk about these Brit comics, you know, whatever. Bring, I'm going to bring them all in. I'm bringing them all back. The Cadillac, everything. You can um, t- you can totally tell we're stalling for the next story, can't you? Hey, I'm fine with it. Whatever. Because speaking of classic works works of art, let's go to Thrill Two Thug the Mighty. Oh boy, <laughs> Script Robot Thark. <laughs> That's fine. Script Robot Thark the Mighty Art Robot Eric Bradbury Legend Robot Gordon Robson. This story's called Bring Me the Head of Dread. Always nice to see Eric Bradbury. He's doing a ton of Tharg stories in these specials, and I appreciate his presence. And I'm going to assume that because it's the mighty, it's credited as the mighty one, this one might be written by Al McKenzie or Richard Burton or something. Usually the editors do these ones. Yeah, about 80% of the time, if it's credited to Tharg, it usually has the Tharg of the time that's written up. Yeah, seems likely. Uh, although I guess the Tharg stories are always credited to Tharg, but who who knows? Um, deep inside the 2000 AD center, Walter the Wobot is chiseling a bust of Judge Dwed when Bert gets a call from Thog. He needs that Dwed bust across town at the Hemsqueed Institute of Kinetic Art in one hour, or it's off to Mequake. With little time to lose, Walter and, and Bert wrap up the bust and head to the London Underground. Unfortunately, all the ticket sellers there are closed and the twains are delayed by several days and the whole place is full of signs and loudspeakers being very sarcastic. Over at the Institute, we see some of the statues from the cover as Igroy does some um, does some mysterious capsules with the Brigand Doom uh, statue. We still never, don't, don't know what those capsules are. And I don't think we ever will. <laughs> um, Oh my god, don't tell me that. Suddenly, a ghost twain arrives the platform full of, like, I don't know, either dead or zombified bodies. It's the Lost 540 from Tufnell Park, delayed 23 years! The droids climb aboard for a long wait as a bearded, bus- a bearded bu- busker plays Mr. Tambourine Man. 
At the gallery, Igroid puts the finishing touches on the Anderson statue, but a wrong chisel hit knocks off her arms, Venus de Milo style. On the twain, Walter's gone crazy, singing a song to the Dwedbust, when suddenly a, terif- a terrifying ticket inspector reveals we- himself. The droids get off the twain, having been towered and feathered. <laughs> Featherwood, I guess. I don't know. It's hard. Um, but find themselves at the foot of a huge, out-of-order escalator. So, you know, it's still stairs or whatever. They finally reach the end, only to find Mechquake waiting for them, ready for some big jobs! But Mechquake is programmed to to punish inefficiency, so instead of going after our friends, he attacks the London Underground itself! The droids make it to the gallery, and the 2080 art exhibit is a massive success. And thus, the droids, now drunk from gallery refreshments, stumble out into the night, deciding to walk home as Walter begins to recite his many volumes of dread poetry. The end! The, the London Underground is terrible, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> sorry, I couldn't resist. I couldn't, re- I, I couldn't resist that, sorry. I don't know. Like, I'll take your word for it, certainly. I don't know. I, I feel like I feel like I've heard good things, but that could just be touristy things or something like that. I don't know. I, 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 I guess I'll find out eventually. I've only ever been to London twice in 1996, and both times the London Underground was terrible, so I totally buy that story. <laughs> Excellent. That's cool. You know, no, no, that, that's funny. I guess it's a universal experience. Um, I don't know. But yeah, you know, just sort of standard, like, Tharg the Mighty stuff here almost. Like, we've just got some... I, I wish we had more droid car- uh, caricatures because it's just Burton and Igroid here. You know, we could get some more guys in. Love to have seen Mac 1 sort of show up just for grins um, and stuff like that. But still, it's fun to see, Me- you know, Mechquake show up briefly in his, you know, old big jobs mode. And I like Br- Bradbury's Tharg and just his style of things. I think a little Easter egg is that he draws the, um, he draws the dread bust as having a kind of dotted outline in the Ascara style, you know? Like, it's got kind of that, like, thick, fuzzy outline, the way Ascara draws dread and stuff. I honestly think you might have been onto something earlier when you said that they probably had the idea for the cover first and then just wrote this to Absolutely. Well, I mean, all of these, <laughs> all of these Eric Bradbury, Tharg the Mighties that have been in both specials and annuals have been very much like, hey, we've got an idea for the cover, we need a story to be really closely aligned to it, often explaining how the cover's made or something like that. And so they have do it with this Tharg the Mighty, with these Th- Eric Bradbury Tharg the Mighty stories. I think we saw a previous one where, like, um, the cover was the was a portrait that Simon Bisley was drawing in the Tharg the Mighty story and stuff like that. Like, it's I don't know, it's sort of a running theme here, just using this Bradbury for these classic Tharg the Mightys. Anyway, enough backstory. We're continuing into the actual meat of the annual, and that means it's time for filler, so let's go to Thrill 3 Covers of 1991. And my favorite cover is not actually there. What the hell, guys? Oh, no. <laughs> to the what, absolute what, shock what's your of favorite cover one, from it's 91. the one with Jack the Ripper holding a knife with his teeth Beard by oh, Chris Vest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's no um there's no uh uh killing time covers in here. That's a bummer for sure. Um 
Yeah, but this is the standard uh, filler piece we see in these annuals and specials and stuff, just going over the covers of the previous year with short blurbs by creators saying why they like them. I, I think pretty much all of Richard Dolan's covers, who had a bunch in 91, are in here, both for Mean Machine and that one guy that's exploding, and then the uh, the Christmas Dread with like the, the Statue of Judgment being made all santified and stuff like that. That's probably one of my favorite covers, actually, from 750. I mean, I will not I will not argue with any of the choices. All of the choices are really good. I just wish it snuck in Chris Vestal. Yeah, I guess if I had a choice... <laughs> If I could, if I could drop one, I think I'd either drop the uh, the Emerald Isle cover by Steve Dillon, although I love Steve Dillon, so that that one's a tough one, or maybe the uh, the Mick Austin Anderson one, just because I know it's sort of based on this like uh, on this soft core picture, so I'm sort of like I'm down on it because of that, because it doesn't really look like Anderson in terms of like the character's hairstyle and stuff. Honestly, if if I could drop one, I would have dropped the Brigadoon one. Also fair, yeah, it's sort of a very bog-standard uh, Steve Yol Steve and Dune cover. This is sort of the close-up of the character. I mean, I, I, love, I love Steve Yol as, as, as much as the next person, but compared to the Chris Wesson one that's missing, I would totally take I the Chris Wesson one that's missing. I guess they're both big close-ups of, evil, of uh, crazy faces and stuff like that, so they have a very similar role in the, in the, in the cover ecosystem, if you will. <laughs> But speaking of natural predators, let's continue on to Thrill 4, Durham Red. Also known as Durham Red goes to Blackpool. Yeah, listen, it's a whole thing. Uh, script robot Alan Grant, art robot Carlos Escara, letting robot Gordon Robson. Yearbooks are usually for Christmas, but it must be summer because now we're walking down Blackpool's Golden Mile. I, I had so many good memories at Blackpool. <laughs> it, it, it was a really good time. I'm excited to go to these pleasure these pleasure beaches in England. It's a very exciting thing. I want I want to do all this stuff. <laughs> it's sort of like I know we have boardwalks like this in the U.S., but it does seem like this. Yeah, these sort of these pleasure beach things like this, or maybe like Western Supermare or something, feel very very English. I guess I've I've heard a lot of people comparing that pool to the a seaside version of Las Vegas, and they're not completely wrong. There, there's a lot. There's a lot of casinos there. Interesting. Yeah, <laughs> very cool. So, yeah, well, listen, you got to do these things, play these fruit machines. I've heard of this. Um, so we're at uh, Blackpool and it's become this giant, like, or yes, it is. But now it's um, like a huge sci-fi amusement park with massive roller coasters and stuff like that. Um, a guy working a carnival stand tries to hit on a passing lady, not realizing that it's the strontium dog, Durham Red. Oh, yeah. Uh, she flashes her fangs and her bounty, a quartet of dudes with um, very uh, heavy metal names, uh, Stonk, Mosh, Headbang, and Slam. I wish there'd been Thrasher in here. It should be full um, Headbangers from the WWE, but whatever, you know, idle wishes. <laughs> Headbanger Mosh, you know. But um, they're wanted dead or alive and Durham's after them. The local says they're running the Zap and Alien game, and Red goes to investigate, but as she does, the local uh, radios the stall to let her know that she's coming. When Red arrives, all these brothers run out, so Red is like, ah, oh, you ratted on me, so she shoots the stall of that informer in a way that, like, the facade of it falls, and, like... 
and f- falls on his neck like a guillotine and cuts his leg and cuts his head off. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> Real quick uh, instant karma here. But now it's time to take out these bounties as Red Buddily runs after them. Uh, she, Red follows uh, Mosh into a hall of mirrors where she blinds him with an electro flare and guns him down. Then she goes after Stonk and Slam, who commandeer a roller coaster car and sort of do the ride and shoot down at Red from it. So she um, runs the control booth and puts the roller coaster at maximum speed so that it goes so fast that when it hits a turn, it just goes flying off the side and like into a wall. And they both sort of crash their deaths, basically, which I think is terrifying. I love it. Yeah, they take a tight turn and crunch. Their way to their deaths. Only Headbang remains, and Red follows him onto the ghost train ride. On that ride, Headbang passes through various scary monsters, including uh, when suddenly a Dracula pops out, and it calls his name, saying he's under arrest. He blasts that vamp, but it's just a distraction for Red, who pounces on him from behind. All this goon chasing has made, has made her hungry. <laughs> And soon the ghost train car arrives back at the starting point with the dead, blood-drained body of Headbang inside. Having done her job, Red heads out. Would she like some whelks? No, she just ate. It is so nice to read a strontium dog that actually feels like a strontium dog. It really does. <laughs> yeah, very much. It's just going after some bounties, using the inv- you know using a sci-fi environment and stuff like that. Like this is just a fun little fun little action story, you know. Though it also it also reminded me actually of another annual story, uh, Costa del Blood, which was also written by Carlos Escar or drawn by Carlos Escar, and I believe written by Alan Grant, where. Um, a Dracula came to a Mega City One Pleasure Beach and Dread <laughs> had to fight him. And that also ended um, in a big fight in a haunted house. So then he staked him with a stake, with a wooden stake that um, I believe a Yeti statue was eating or something like that. So yeah, basically it's really good. But the problem with it being really good is it's hard to say how good it is. It's just really good. Yeah, I mean, this, I mean, honestly, like, this one almost felt like a reprint to me or something because it just feels like kind of a, a late 80s, like, random, like, Stranium Dog story, you know, like, just something that, that you'd have in the weekly prog, like, in between big Johnny Alpha stories or something like that, you know? Yeah, it almost feels out of place considering where Garth Ennis is eventually going to take Stranium Dogs. It feels... Yeah, I mean, or even where we are now, like, I mean, the most recent Grant Ascara, uh Durham Red story was that one with the, um, with, with what, where she, like, gets addicted to that hallucinogenic drug, and there's a big metal sun, and a goth lord, and a lot of stuff, of, like, traumatic stuff about Red's past and stuff like that. So this, I just have kind of a, a fun, murdery one-off almost feels out of place in terms of where they're taking this character as well. It really does, but even when you say that, it's still really good, especially when you consider what's coming next. Oh, let's just rip the, let's just rip the band-aid off. You know. All right, fair uh, enough. Yeah, keep going with Thrill Five Robo Hunter. <laughs> Script robot Mark Miller, art robot Simon Jacob, lettering robot Gordon Robson, of course. 
in a futuristic underwater Manhattan, a, I think a spaceship has crashed and a bunch of scavengers are looting the place. A dying crew member that's some sort of giant alien person says they shall pray that the succubus is dead as, and scavengers are confused as a monstrous face says he loathes the ill-educated. We learn that the succubus um, is a being born of a human father and a robot mother and a feared assassin throughout the galaxy that was caught, caught two weeks ago by a race called the Ancient Ones, but then their ship hit a pleasure cruiser over the city of, of uh, Manhattan, where it cr or the sunken underwater city of old Manhattan, where it crashed. And we also learned that um, this above water city of New, Man of New Manhattan was built by a Japanese company and everybody in new in old manhattan has been like turned into underwater slaves or something like some of them come up and do the cleaning for new manhattan but otherwise it's sort of a weird underwater society i don't know to this setting comes sam slade in like one of those water jet kind of things like with, i think you like a big underwater engine that you kind of hold on to that's covered in mostly sony branding but also just a ton of other branding we got a lot of social commentary going on here that's what i'm trying to say i'm dying Davies, whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's just you know there's just a lot of incidental commentary and things like that going on here um so Sam Slade's heading down to investigate while dropping a ton of narration-based backstory here. He finds the ship full of gutted bodies hanging from the ceiling. Things look pretty bad, especially as in the sunken city, we see uh, the succubus is some kind of giant biomechanical mechanical Godzilla type with a big metal sleeveless tuxedo look going on and here's where I'm just going to get it out of the way and say like I don't know if it's I, I don't really like that this is obviously a male character called a succubus because that's a lady thing traditionally like it should be an incubus maybe or whatever listen I don't know I feel like that's the least of the problems of the strip but we'll get to that <laughs> Listen, I'll I'll pick I'll pick and choose what I choose to focus on. You know, whatever. He's killing people and gunning them down. And Sam's on his way again on his Sony branded water scooter. We learned that most of the people in old Manhattan spend their days at these weird sex club things called the Pleasure Dome, and we get sort of a flash of it where there's a lot of people either in like kind of Nazi getups or there's some folks engaging in. Like, with, like, a Pope hat also engaging in puppy play. There's just a lot of, uh... Listen, it's, again, weird sex club stuff. Good times. And the, and the succubus is now invading it. Kills a few people, but finally Sam arrives. Blows off half the monster's face with his proton blaster. The succubus trades gunfire and up... Uh, sorry. Trades gunfire and upper crust Bon Mons with, with, with Slade, calling Sam a bounder, and then his attacks aren't cricket and things like that. Then stomps Sam to the floor, through the floor to the levels below, where I guess there's this teleporter that'll let it get into New Manhattan itself. But when it goes to teleport away, um, it seems that they have the teleportation systems are closed on the weekends and it's Sunday. So instead of teleporting away, it just sort of vaporized itself into the sky above Manhattan. It's now stuck, you might say, 
in between the moon and New York City. <laughs> that's my pun. That's not in there. That's my joke. Um, anyway, yeah, the day is saved. Good times, I suppose. I'm starting to wonder. I'm starting to wonder if it was Sonic the Hedgehog that chased me away from this car. <laughs> <sighs> ah, I mean. I mean, I'll say like there's some attempts at jokes, but they aren't they aren't really great at this one. It's a lot. There's a lot of like again, like I would say eternally. I feel like the criticism for um, Robo Hunter is that it just has problems with tone, like in terms of want. Does it want to be? A really heavy, violent comic? Does it want to have a lot of social commentary? Or does it want to have, like, jokes and stuff like that? And and, and be light and fun. And it kind of does... It tries to do both, and it's not It's not adept enough to kind of have it both ways, basically. I think you can sum it up. Uh, what you just said there was this one little panel towards the end of it, where Sam is running away from the succubus, and he's thinking to himself... Sheesh, whatever happened to those cute little robots with a song for every occasion? Mark Mother killed them. Mark Mother killed them all. You mar- you murdered them. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah, you killed them. <laughs> like, yeah. It doesn't even have, like, yeah, like, he got he killed Hoagie and Stogie, you know? Like, listen, if you wanted comic relief... You had people to bounce things off of, you know? You brought back Cutie then turned her into a psychopath. <laughs> You've got no right to joke about stuff like this, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like at the very least he could have been doing... I don't, I don't know. I feel like I'm a, an appreciator of dialogue instead of narration. And there's definitely a move to become very narration heavy in these Robo it's Hunters bad. as well, which I'm sort it's of just annoyed really bad. by. Or whatever. Anyway, I don't want to dwell on Robo Hunter because, you know, we care not to. Yeah. So instead, let's continue on. And I guess speaking of New York City being a crazy place, we go to Thrill 6 Indigo Prime. <laughs> Script by John Smith. Art robot Pauline Doyle, and we got another annual, so another massive text story by John Smith. Eight pages. Oh, I couldn't help but count. I am not complaining because it's John Smith. <laughs> it's fine. This is the only 2000 work by Pauline Doyle, I believe, who is an Irish painter. Um, I, I couldn't find too much about her, but I did find some sort of watercolors and drawings she has for sale online. Shame. Our illustrations are pretty good in this. Yeah, I, I feel like they're really good for Indigo Prime. They kind of ha- they have this very um like modern art kind of feel to them, sort of b- blending in like some pop art elements or some mixed media things with some very like sk- like um like ba- like 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 harsh um additional uh, pieces of art and stuff like that. So much almost seems like scratched into the uh, to the to the uh, larger picture and stuff. It's it's cool. Um, also, I can't tell if it's the scans we've got or something, but the typeface is kind of blurry on here, which made it hard for me to read, I guess. But I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure it is the scan because I do have the original copy of this, and it's not that bad. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but so basically, Imagineer Miles Keish and a team of other Indigo Prime agents are sent after a villain named the Freaky Fuhrer after a slightly alternate reality New York City's water supply is dosed with LSD by the Viet Cong. The whole place is ripped out of existence. Uh, They also end up going after a monster called the FBI. Uh, That's E-Y-E. 
And eventually, all is well that ends well as the city warps to uh, Pompeii, where it gets caught up in the volcano and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, I know there's a lot more to it than that, but it's really, really John Smithy, guys. Yeah, like, sorry, I'm I'm skipping over it just because, with all, as with all these tech stories, like, it's very hard to go into a lot of detail without just kind of reading the story out loud, basically. Honestly, I think he did a pretty good job. It's just very, very John Smithy. Absolutely, yeah. There's just a, so much, discuss, like, there's a, just a lot of, like... It goes really in depth about the idea of like every every citizen of New York suddenly taking a massive LSD hit, for instance. Um, more talk about sort of like the ins and outs of Indigo Prime, the relation between um, the main character Miles and this woman Carol, who's also an Indigo Prime operative. Um, like just more reality bending stuff and you know things that makes you question reality less body horror in this one i feel like than some other ones other john smith stories i've read um in the course of these annuals but still a little bit and like yeah i thought it was um this is a fun story and again like i'd get like honest like if 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 i like if i was i don't know if if i was rebelling i was interested in it in a in a line of like just book in, in a in doing more books as well as commissioning like new dread novels and stuff, I feel like a collection of these John Smith annual stories wouldn't be remiss. Like I think that could be an interesting publication just because they're so. I I'm su- I'm su- I'm surprised they've never actually done that already. Uh, maybe a collection of like just the yearbook text stories. Yeah, I mean, I feel like. You could definitely get of you know you could get a pretty weighty volume just out of all the text stories, and I mean, there's some names in here like behind in the course of those in besides John Smith, like there's a Neil Gaiman one and stuff. Like you know, there's a very early uh, Dan Abnett story in the course of these annuals and specials and stuff. There, there's two Devlin War ones that's coming up by John Smith, which are really good, and I don't think I've ever been reprinted. Ooh, I'm excited. I, I, I don't feel like any of these stories have been reprinted, honestly, because I feel like of the filler, these are the fillery, these are the filleriest, you know, parts of the annual. I guess it's sort of interesting because I feel like with almost every annual, they just sort of get to the point w- w- or. At this point, with every annual, they just have eight pages marked out and just say, like, John, like, you know, give me what you got. And he just, you know, like, runs out of some ridiculous storyline. And it's cool. Like, I think it's a really interesting use of of his writing talents. I think he is a really good writer of, you know, of the 2000 AD like writers, he's the one that I think goes to go like writes a text story that feels like an actual story as opposed to a comic strip script i guess is what i'm trying to say and often has these terrifying elements <laughs> also also i may be wrong but unless there's uh, i may be wrong but unless there's another uh story next year i think this is it for Car- for indigo prime until 2012 oh man could be it's hard to you know like these annuals have ways of sneaking up on you you know and i will say that john smith is very much a um He's actually kind of like Mackenzie somehow. He sort of manages to have important, have plot important uh, stories in um, these specials and annuals and stuff like that. I mean, I mean, if you don't count a certain Tyranny Rex story that comes in 1994, I think that character's in annuals and yearbooks more than she actually is in actual blogs. 
<laughs> that's yeah. I mean, absolutely. Like certainly at this point, I feel like the last Tyranny Rex was like drawn by Steve Dillon. You know, <laughs> like that was the last one of the. Or I guess, I guess no. Sorry, Soft Bodies was the last one. But who was that? I don't know. Whatever. But it's um. We're definitely keeping these things, these characters going in these specials. Yeah, I, I think this is the last um, work by, by, or this is the last Indigo Prime in um, in the specials, looks like. Just checking it out. But anyway, yeah. But interesting stuff. I wish, I, again, this is one of these ones where I wish they would have some collections for them just because there's definitely interesting, interesting content here. But I guess, and um, speaking of characters that appear heavily in... Of things that appear heavily in specials, let's go to Thrill 7 Brigand Doom. I really thought you were going to say, and speaking of things that important stuff happens in the annuals and the yearbooks. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, this one I feel is a little less important than actually previous Brigand Doom stories we've had in specials and annuals, I guess. <laughs> Because, like, in the in the sci-fi special, we, like, learned important pieces of Investigator 9's backstory and stuff. Whereas this one is just sort of feels like a day, like a state, like, like just another Brigand Doom crime, I guess. Uh, script about Alan McKenzie, art about Dave DeAntiki, <laughs> lettering about Gordon Robb Thing. Ooh. Of course, of course we've got a Brigand Doom story in here, <laughs> you know. Um <clears throat> In the city, at the new municipal art gallery, Investigator 9 is working security at some kind of art thingy. There's a city minister for the arts that arranged it, and it's the showing of an artist named Maggie Miller. Um, Inspector 9 is working... Yes, so she's working security and seems very over it. There's a pretty funny line where a socialite asks if uh, she's a lover of art, and she says she's less of a lover and more a fighter of art, which I think is pretty crazy. Um, But anyway, party ends. She logs off at 23, 23 hours, and at... 2332 hours that dang brigand doom breaks in harumphs at all the modern art and kills a guard with a spiky u-shaped sculpture while calling art museums a waste of time in the face of you know the use of uh, a waste of time and resource in the face of other societal needs i mean i mean he says that but spend a year without going to an art gallery because of recent events and you change your tune very quickly <laughs> i mean like i feel like there's a societal good in an art gallery for god's sake like what's the point of living if there isn't <laughs> art to improve it you know this is a this is a this is a weird take for someone who works in the art industry alan mckenzie you know uh, nine is woken up at 0257 to go back to the art gallery which is now all destroyed with a guard's body hanging in the middle of it and this is another one like i it, it might not be but in this era whenever i see a dead body kind of hanging in the middle of a space i feel like it's kind of a it's at least rough it's at least vaguely inspired by a silence of the lambs and the big like uh murder hannibal lecter does in that movie like, I don't know. It's just I, I I just come back to it just because that's a very arresting image that I feel like comes up a lot. Um, at 0305, Doom breaks into the apartment of the artist that did the exhibit, stabbing her to death and um, painting a portrait in her own blood. It actually really reminds me of um, what's her name? The lady that gets killed in uh, Psycho. Oh, 
I know who you're talking about, but I cannot remember the name of the actress. Uh, Janet Leigh. Yeah, it looks like how... Um, it does. Uh, uh, Janet Leigh being stabbed in the shower in, uh, in, in Psycho. Um, and um, then... After that, Brig, Brig, uh, Doom heads to the home of the city minister that financed the exhibit. We see him slaughtering guards pretty crazily. Um, and then does something, you know, we sort of fade to black with Doom with a sack of cement and a trowel. And later we cut to Nine and some stormtroopers investigating the minister and they say that he's gone missing but as we, um, as the scene fades out, as Doom laughs and like whatever, the mystic background, we see that in fact the minister has been killed and in his Y fronts has been like covered in cement and sculpted into the shape of Michelangelo's David. Okay, I guess. <laughs> I am, um, I will have to admit it here. I'm not exactly the biggest fan of Brigand Doom. It's fair. I mean, I, I, like, I've been trying to give it a chance because I, because Fox loves Brigand Doom, uh, Doom a ton. And I feel like it had sort of a, a strong first entry and then kind of lost its way a little bit. I would like it if it was, if, if there's more Brigand Dooms like this that are just sort of like weird societal commentaries and mass murder, I guess. Well, I've got some bad news for you, my friend. Nah, I'm just kidding. I, I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> and less zombie stuff. I don't know. Less mystical stuff. You know, fair. I admit that like... After I think the second Brigand Doom, it very much it became one of the ones that I just kind of skipped through when I was reading through my initial time. So you know I can be surprised by what's going to happen in the pages of Doom. But yeah, I don't know. This was an I thought this was an okay story. I guess I feel like it's got a very um, like like cynical teenager view of art and like modern art and stuff like that. I suppose <laughs> like very like like um, you know imagining all art as being just done by idle society types to be sort of upper class uh, twits around it as opposed to art being an important thing, which I don't know. I feel like it kind of is. I don't – whatever. I don't have a strong opinion, but I, I sort of feel like – I feel like a uh, – uh, like Brigandoom's trying too hard with social commentary here. It's trying to be a pound man version of V for Vendetta. I mean, very much that's what – Brigand Doom always is, is that it's it's very much trying to it's very much trying to inherit that V for Vendetta crown, for sure. So yeah, not ex- not exactly the worst thing in this, but I just don't really care about Brigand Doom. <laughs> Thrill 8, Bix Barton. Speaking of also of things like vaguely inspired by Silence of the Lambs, I guess. Uh, scripture about Peter Milligan, art about James McCarthy, lettering about Gordon Robbs. Bix Barton on a normal day is very, very bizarre, but this one is like one of the realest once <laughs> I I I ha- I must disagree honestly because we've had a we had a Big Spartan where there was a murderous full English breakfast so that's sort of the high point for me in terms of these weird Barton <laughs> so but this is the first of a few Bixes we'll have in annuals and specials. Open with Bix wearing a yellow bandana over his face as both Michael Caine and new friend Agent Weep give him a hard time about it. Apparently it all started with a man named Carlton Smythe, who's lived a hard life, perpetual 12th man, he calls him. Um but who is feeling very happy because he's about to go on a second date with a shadowy figure. But the next day, Carlton is found insane, just like ten other men. Bix Barton's on the case, and it seems that part of the cause of 
Carlton's insanity is that his mouth has disappeared. Oh, he's just got a blank space. It's like uh, Keanu Reeves in the first Matrix movie or whatever. Bix puts all this together very quickly. All the victims were clearly on dates because they were sort of unattractive, overdressed, had fresh cut flowers, things like that. Um, yeah, they're on dates when their kissers were kleptos, so he goes to investigate, eventually finding the perfect match hologram dating agency, where we see that Carlton and indeed all the other victims were clients. The lady who works there can't share the uh, agency's cl- uh, client, like, like who got matched up with who, to um, to Barton. But that's fine, so Bix just kind of goes undercover as a lonely heart himself. Um, we see him on one blind date, and apparently there are several, but I would have loved to just have a, more of a montage of Bix on, on various blind dates here. But instead, he has one, and then he goes to, on, a, on a second one, where he's matched with an extreme, with, with a lady who's sending his rheumometer off the chart, and um, may in fact be some kind of weirdo. He opens the door and suddenly things get very, very silent at the lambs, if you ask me. The date reveals himself to be a man with like sort of a balding head and stuff like that. Like sort of like, again, Buffalo Bill kind of type here. And soon Bix finds himself strapped to a table where this person, Keith Richards, I guess no relation, has um, transplanted Bix's mouth onto his own, has sort of swapped mouths with him surgically. We also see, like, kind of an ice tray with a bunch of other uh, purloined uh, pusses, uh, stolen mouths in, like, an icebox or something like that. Um, And whatever. Basically, Keith explains his backstory. He was a man with an extremely feminine mouth, and so now he's been stealing men's mouths to find a perfect one to transplant onto his face, and Bix's was that one. But then... He passes out because Bix coated his mouth with a powerful tranquilizer, I guess? I I don't know. Um, But that seems to win the day um, as suddenly the cops appear or whatever. And um, Bix is safe, but we learn that when... Keith took, again, so they reiterate that when Keith took Bix's mouth, he gave him his own, and he needs, and Bix needs six weeks to recover from the mouth surgery before he can get his own mouth back. So until then, he's got this dang old girl mouth. Oh no. But on the bright side, at least he can get some side work as a lipstick model. Don't, don't, it feels like something that would not be done today. <laughs> don't like this. I don't know. Feels no. Feels feels very very regrettable in the modern age. Basically, just sort of this sort of making fun of trans people. Very like seems like, and just a lot of other um, and just like gender norms, etc. And uh, like honestly, I will like. I feel. I wish. Jim McCarthy had done more to draw Bix Barton's mouth as being like, I don't know, butcher or something like that. Just because, I don't know, when we see Richards with Bix's mouth, it's still got like pink lips, like it has lipstick on it and stuff like that. So it doesn't seem particularly manly to me, just in terms of the joke we're going for here. I don't know. Uh, as Fun Solo says in the 2018 stages, Fred, when 
the 2000 AD forms. This is a very Marmite story, and unfortunately, this particular one is on the bad side of the Marmite for me. Speaking of, speaking of fun, when's the next 2K stages? Come on, man. I'm calling you out here. <laughs> oh, no. Don't use my podcast for forum drama. I don't appreciate that. Lord knows. It's not forum drama. I just want to see another stage. We're getting, we're getting close to Kanan Ford or 2. I want to see Kanan Ford or 2. That's all. Fair enough. Speaking of behind the scenes thing, let's quickly go to Thrill 9, Droid Profile Cyborg. <clears throat> so, late in the annual, we get a few filler pages of creator and staff profiles. Quite a mix of people. Um, it asks stuff like favorite foods, movies, ideal U.S. president, and fave newspaper. <sighs> we start with the Audrey Wong bot who likes crisps, chalks, and pasta and thinks Yosemite Sam should be the next president. Moving on, we go to Thrill 10 Future Shocks. Script robot Alan McKenzie as Sidney Falco. Art robot Sean Phillips. Letting robot Gordon Robson. I see you, McKenzie. <laughs> I see you, Sidney Falco. You're going to ruin Dread in about a year's time. <laughs> oh, no. I, I should say, I, I, I recall Sidney Falco being a, uh, a character in a movie, I think, but whatever. Um, it's really nice art. I will give that the story that it is really nice art. I do think it's really interesting seeing Sean Phillips doing some non-painted art here. I'm really used to that style, so it's cool, it's cool to see his line work. Um, yeah, it's just, I love all these. Um, this character is a black and white story about Bruno Ismabard Kingdom, and I really love um, Phillips draws like maybe... A dozen crazy faces for this guy, for this guy, and they're all really fun. Although there is some reuse and the, there there is some copy paste towards the end, but um, I really like just sort of yeah all the different faces that he, that this character makes here. It's it's fun. But so he is an engineer from a long line of engineers, but dreams of being an artist and decides to p- find a sci-fi engineering answer to the problem of becoming an artist. He's built a pan-temporal image synthesizer, which will help him in this process because it sucks the creative forces out of all of history's greatest artists and then will download them into this machine. He starts by downloading the spirit of Van Gogh, but instead of making a painting, like there's sort of this computer readout that is like just to kind of talks back to him, clearly can't hear him well because, um, you know, he's only got one ear, etc. Uh, frustrated, he instead tries downloading Matisse. But listen, Matisse paints when he wants the paint, so get out of here. He doesn't want to do it. <laughs> In the end, Bruno summons the spirit of Andy Warhol, asks for some abstract art, but instead of a new painting, the machine just spits out a fancy contract about various publishing and film rights, etc. Blah, blah, blah. Which I think could be a, an Andy Warhol art piece, for the record. Like, you know. I don't get this one. I feel like I'm stupid with this one. I don't get it at all. <laughs> Yeah, listen, art it yeah, art cannot be mechanicalized. Bah, bah, bah. I don't know. I guess it's just like I don't I, I guess the like the joke is just that artists are, are weird and temperamental, basically. So like building a machine to harness the personalities of art of classic artists wouldn't be the easy path to riches that you'd think, maybe. I don't know. But yeah. This mostly feels like a dig at Andy Warhol, I guess. 
Yeah, who, 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 who had, like, you know, died a couple of years ago. Like, I don't know, it doesn't seem that cool. But whatever, I guess. Um, anyway, let's keep going to Thrill 11 Droid Profile Bishop. Another droid profile, this time for magazine editor Bishop, the Dave Bishop droid. You'd think they'd put this in the Dread yearbook just because of, you know, what he, what he does for a living. But I don't know. Very random. This one, I feel like I've said before that these profiles are just whoever's in the office that day. But this one really feels like it, just in terms of, like, whoever walked in. Like, they, the first three people that, that like, they came to had to fill out these forms and then they were done, basically. I will admit, this one feels like, as you said, it should be in the Dread yearbook, mostly because the last episode of two of his stories is in the Dread. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that that's a Dave Bishop heavy uh, uh, yearbook, honestly. Um, and that one doesn't actually has very little of these filler things, as I recall. Um, I guess we'll find out. But uh, you know, he likes chocolate, bacon, and mushroom sandwiches, and lemon stir fry, and think Calvin and Hobbes should be president. Calvin isn't old enough to be president. He's like seven. Come on. Um, although I do like this shout out, you know, this is the 92, this is the real high point for Calvin and Hobbes, maybe three years left, I think, for that uh, comic strip. And speaking of classic comics, let's continue on to Thrill 12 Slain. So if I recall, this is the entirety of that three episodes Rain story from a while back. Yeah, this is all of all of Slain the King. Uh script robot Pat Mills, art robot Glenn Fabry, letting robot uh, P- uh Peter Knight, I believe. Um yeah, but this one ran from Prague five eighty nine to five ninety, our episodes one eighty seven to one eighty nine, this weird kind of bridge between the Fabry era and the uh, and, and, and the Bisley era. Yeah, this was which was the last rain story before the Horn God, wasn't it? Absolutely, because indeed mo- m- most of the events of this story are recapped in Horn God Part 1, basically. Um, but yeah, it's still fun, and I, of course, love Fabry's art. It's really amazing, so it's, you know any chance to check it out is fine with me. Uh, Slain, he's king and leading his tribesmen to battle against the Fomorian sea devils. They're sky clad, a.k.a. naked. Uh, the boys run into fight as their wives and children look on and heckle their fighting. Among them, Ucko, the dwarf. Um, and uh, he's taking a very uh, aggressive narration role as we go through this story as well. In the background, we see the earth goddess Bloodwood looking on as they rush to battle. Um, and the thought of his godly wife, because I think in a previous Slain story, we saw Slain become, you know, chief and thus was married to the earth goddess in a mystic ceremony. And this causes him to warp out, to enter a warp spasm. And without a hero harness, he just gets real crazy. Just this big, disgusting mass of like tissue and stuff, like a tiny mouth in the middle. It barely even makes, he just, this becomes a giant axe wheel and weighing, basically. It's, it's weird times. Um, <laughs> really f- fun art though. We see with one swing of his axe, you can kill 30 Fomorians and he doesn't think of too many. We see Bloodwed, the Earth Goddess, turn into Morgu, the Hoodie Crow, Goddess of War. And at the same time, we see Fomorian leaders being led to the Cauldron of Blood slash Plenty, where their throats are opened up into the pot for the Death Goddess, Serdwin, and her son Avigdu to drink. The two and the God and Goddess uh, bicker a bit, as it seems Avigdu has designs on Bloodwed, 
But it's all very hypothetical at this point. I don't know if we get into that at some point in Slam. We definitely haven't yet. So we see all the Cesar, um, the Slain's tribe warping out, fighting these Fomorians. Um, pretty gross. You know, love these warp guys as the three aspects of the Earth goddess look on. The goddesses mock humanity and men specifically because they don't know anything and soon their deaths will all aid the goddesses. This sort of, we're seeing the seeds of this uh, Pat Mills uh, power, uh, women being powerful but treacherous themes coming along. You can see this a lot more. Actually, like, I feel like we're seeing a lot more this year, I guess, like sort of in both ABC Warriors and in the upcoming Finn and Flesh stories that we'll be getting to in a couple issues. Um, I, f- I feel like Pat might have been working through some issues at this day. Oh, I mean, yes, I feel like that is, um, I believe, <laughs> I don't want to, listen, we'll get into it, absolutely. Um, on Earth, the druid summon a giant flying death serpent out of Earth energy, and again, yeah, just more stuff with the worm goddess and stuff from ABC Warriors, the enemy is vanquished, and the boys are headed home, but Slane's unhappy, he needs to kill more Fomorians to make up for what they've done to his wife and the pe- his wife, the Earth, and his people, he won't be happy until he's waded neck deep in gore, which is cool. <laughs> Post-battle, members of Slane's tribe are fighting and dying for the hero's portion of the big feast. And Ucko's <laughs> dropping some uh, Hobbit-style Hobbit riddles here. But Slane's restless. You know, they've killed a bunch of sea devils. And Slane doesn't think it too many. Hey, frankly, it's not enough, you know? <laughs> to finally beat them, there's only one thing they got to do. And that's unite with the other three tribes of the Cesare and crown a new high king. People are pretty much against this. They like being a tribe, not a country or whatever. A strong king's scary, and that's why they elected the old king, Slane's foster brother, Ragdoll, to lead the tribe, because he was weak. But it's also why Ragdoll was so weak in the face of the Fomorians, and they all got taken over. You know, it's tough. The loudest of these discontents, the noseless Madad, the quarrelsome, gets his cloak cut for being a jerk and not like, you know, whatever, being quarrelsome, I guess. Um, and Slane mentions that, hey, listen, like, even if I do become a king, uh, you'll be killing me in seven years. So there's sort of a natural term limit to which I say, yes, of course, tyrants have never adjusted the terms of their rulership once they've gotten absolute power. It never happens. Um, Madhead argues that surely the Cauldron of Blood is enough, but Slane disagrees. The other tribes have treasures too, as we'll see in the Horn God, the Silver Sword of the Moon, the Flaming Spear of the Sun, and the Sacred Stone of Destiny. With all four of these together, they'll be unstoppable, and Tir Nanog will be free. Uh, maybe not, but it's a good... A man can dream, you know? <laughs> and we finished with what, with what was a back cover, I believe, of a 2000 AD issue where we just see, like, the Zodiac of Slain's tribe um, with, like, a bunch of tribe members and their sign of the Celtic Zodiac and their badass uh, backstories. Though I don't think many of these characters will actually show up in The Horned God. I think... Madad will morph into a druid in the Horn God, I think, just to be the the sound, the, the voice of uh the voice of like sort so, of just the 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 person that's telling Slay not to do what his plans are. And I believe Mongan will stick around as well, but most of these other guys really don't, I think. 
Anyway, good times, though. I always love seeing Fabry's art and these classic Slane stories, for sure. Yeah, this is when Slane was really, really, really good. Honestly, I know this is, yet again, destroying your current timeline, but... I think Swain really should have stayed dead after the Horn God. I think it's that. Uh, I really sorry, do. I mean, he's still he's still alive at the end of the Horn God. I'll mention, but uh, yeah, for for a couple of years, it just becomes Doctor Who with an axe. It really does. <laughs> I know there's more slain stories to come. I, I I feel like I've read a couple, but many of them I feel like I've I've forgotten. I feel like there's a time we sort of start time traveling again or something at some point. Um, I don't know. I mean. I mean, listen, when you say it like that, it sounds awesome. So I'm, I'm willing to give it a chance, you know, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that in theory, I suppose. <laughs> but I guess uh, speaking of, uh, of, of, uh, no, I don't know. Bleh. Yeah, there's not really much of a segue to this one, is there? <laughs> <laughs> it's tough. I guess speaking of people uh, 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 drinking in strange settings, I don't know. Deadly games of chance. Let's go to Thrill 13, Stratium Dogs. Script robot Garth Ennis, art robot Simon Harrison, lettering robot Gordon Robson. Um, this one, I feel like this is, feels very classic um, Simon Harrison, Strontium Dog. Like he's, you know, these days he's doing much more painted stuff like for Revere and a previous Strontium Dog story. This feels more like a return to those um final solution days of Simon Harrison with line work. So it sort of reminds me actually of the future shock in this one where it was also Cliff, uh, um, where also uh, Sean Phillips was doing line it work. Or it does feel stuff. like a flowback. Again, the second Strontium Dog story in this feels like a flowback. <laughs> yeah, though interestingly two different eras because this feels like, yeah, sort of a a post-final solution kind of story, I guess, as opposed to, I don't think Farrell's in this one has quite made the change that he's in the process of coming to even in the, in the last Strontium Dog story we, we read in the Prague, I guess. Um, so at a bar on the edge of space, two weirdos play cards until one sees the other as a mutant hidden under a, hidden under a, ho- a hooded road robe. The other gambler pulls a gun and we see that the hooded figure is feral. And this story is called Dead Man's Hand. Everyone in the bar comes up with guns, including several mutants that seem to be on Farrell's team. He explains they're just trying to run or that they're just trying to earn money to continue being on the run from the post-Final Solution bounties on their heads. But these humans seem keen to collect those very same bounties, so it's a standoff. (laughs) Farrell suggests that they resolve the the standoff by playing a game of poker. And so they sit down and do so. They call the game that they're playing five stud, but it is a draw poker game. So who knows? You know, it's the future, I guess. It's. I think it's always funny. Um, sorry, just these days, all poker and movies has become um, Texas Hold'em. So it's kind of funny to see this more traditional version of poker being played. You know, I don't know movie things. Um, but so as they play, the human goes to cheat by pulling a card taped under the bottom of the table. But Farrell actually grabs it first, and Farrell wins the game with a. With a uh, with a spades with a spades royal flush. Oh man, that's the best hand ever. The human says he couldn't have had that hand, but to, oh, the only way he could prove that is because he was. He said he was to, was to admit that he was cheating with the card taped under the table. 
And because of that, Farrell sort of, you know, moves fast and cuts him open saying, you bet your life and cheated. A firefight breaks out and soon all the humans are dead and the mutants are victorious as Farrell reveals that he too had an ace hidden up his sleeve. Oh, it's hard out there in deep space. And that's sort of the resolution here. You either become the cheat or are the cheat. You know, yeah. Yeah. If the, if you look around the table and you aren't cheating or whatever, <laughs> and you know who the cheater is, it's you or something like that. I will say if I was in charge of this story, I would have had Farrell's winning hand or at least, or maybe this bad guy's losing hand be um, aces over eights because that's the actual dead man's hand in like a cowboy terms, I guess. Like uh, Wild Bill Hickok was killed with uh, two black aces and two black eights and then the Queen of Hearts. Um, so that's sort of traditionally called the dead man's hand. So it'd be cool if he had had that and then Farrell had had like, I don't know, maybe a maybe a diamonds based royal flush or something. But whatever, whatever. No one asks me. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Just sort of a like you said, this feels very old school as well, just sort of a day in the life of um, badass, rapidly mutating feral, I suppose, just killing these dudes and being very cool about it. Yeah, it, I, it, as you said, it really does feel like a throwback to uh, the last couple of uh, Strongham Dog stories before it kind of got rebooted. Yeah, yeah. If uh, if the Durham Red story was like an eighty was like a 1986 Strontium dog. This is like a 1990 strontium dog or something. Various vintages here. But I guess as we talk about newer vintages, let's go to Thrill 14, Droid Profile, Mark Miller. Again, just sort of a random one here, although I guess Miller does have a story in this in this one, so it is at least vaguely on um on ta- on topic. Um they call him Babyface in this one. Mark Miller's 23 in 1992. His fave foods are all frozen ones, including one with a very with a regrettable name, I think, and thinks that a uh, Heckbeck alien Texas Texan millionaire slash fountain should be the next president. All of his answers feel very um, like I'm 23 and I'm going to give some edgy answers to things, you know. The only exception is his favorite shop because I can totally understand that because. <laughs> You do not know how small the original Forbidden Planet in Glasgow was before they moved to bigger premises two years. You could barely move in it, so I totally get his answer to this. Oh, I see. Forbidden Planet Glasgow for the tears and for the laugh. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to, vi- to visit your Forbidden Planets um, in, in England for sure. Oh my god, the Glasgow one is amazing since they moved into the bigger premises. There's like three floors. It's great. It's like the entire bottom floor is like just comics and figures and stuff. And then the floor above that is like D&D stuff and manga. And then there's something, the third floor is like uh, back issues and stuff. It's amazing. Oh, that's awesome. Cool. Yeah, definitely got to check it out. Anyway, uh, speaking of filler, we continue to Thrill 15 Series Index Update. Again, this is just more of the series indexes. Um, adding additions from last year brings you up to Prog 779. Um, just everything from ABC Warriors to Zippy Couriers. Um, I think sort of basically the six and seven hundreds here. It's a little funny because they'll be putting out like big collected versions of these with prog 800 which we just talked about like the the free gifts for three issues are just little booklets with 
this same information. So they're sort of they're sort of double dipping in terms of this content, basically. I think one's two thousand D stories, one's Judge Dredd stories. I can't remember what the third one is. There's um there's the credits for all the for ones for all the dread stories, one for all the ones for all the other stories, and then one is like a checklist, I believe, or just um like they I don't know they work it out. I I, I forget exactly as well, but yeah, it's just sort of like you know ways different these little uh, booklets of this back information and stuff. Again, important for collectors, I think, just because it's sort of this Barney before Barney, you know, just, just sort of know who wrote what and stuff like that um but the, oh sorry one is a uh yeah there one's credits for dread stories one's credits for other stories and then one is a timeline of 2000 ad basically like when like prog by prog of just when certain stories ends and important um important thrills and things like that all right and yeah and then continuing our filler series let's just go to thrill 16 droid profile chris weston my boy. <laughs> hey, friend of the show, Chris Weston. All right. I stalk him on Twitter, you know. <laughs> hey, I, I mean, I, I follow him too, whatever. We've had interactions, you know? So, you know, we're we're actual, like, he's an actual friend of the show. He did an episode, whatever, you know? Um, he likes spaghetti bolognese, lamb biryani, and Sunday roast, and thinks Oprah should be the next president. Um, and actually, I think of all the people here, he's got the straightest answers of um, all of the all of the uh, responders and stuff like that. And his picture is a is a windward from. Uh, yeah, this is the best one, and I am not just saying that because I'm biased. That really is the best one <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Um, and so after that, there's just a quick ad for the Dread Yearbook, which is going to be Britsit themed, apparently, or at least some of the stories are. I know it. I know it has the last ever episodes of Straight Jacket Fits and Soul Sisters in it, but apart from that, it's a blah what's in there. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, they reprint the Atlantis story from Dread, and I think there's a few other things, but yeah, it's got the last Soul Sisters and then a very, um, uh, uh, Arkham Asylum inspired um, straitjacket fit story like the other uh, Grant Morrison Dave McKean um, graphic novel <laughs> it's weird oh that's gonna be a weird one alright stay tuned on Friday <laughs> and speaking of weird ones speaking on the topic of weird ones let's speaking of stuff that speaking of reasons why I wanted to do this episode <laughs> and Chris Weston yeah let's go to Thrill 17, Rogue Trooper. Oh my god, so many thrills. Script robot John Smith, art robot Chris Weston, letting robot Gordon Robson. All right. Okay, so here we go with the Rogue Trooper. Killing Time Team, back for some Friday-themed body horror. All right. Or as I, or as I like to call it, Rogue Trooper walks into an Indigo Prime episode. Serious? I feel like we actually have seen this exact plot in Indigo... Like, I feel like the Silencers, or what's... No, sorry, what's his name? Fervent and Loeb walked in, <laughs> did this exact same story, almost. We see Friday Lion Spread Eagle as some kind of terrifying biological mass on the ceiling, drips blood and gore and meat down onto him it covers his face sealing all of his head holes shut and just oh it's just a bad time anyway how did it come i mean a bad time <laughs> yeah well i mean you know it's an indigo prime time i guess or whatever a john a john smith time you know <laughs> 
But the question is, how did it come to this? Hey, let's flashback. Friday's making his way through the wasteland when he comes across a clearly haunted mansion. There's a big multicolored pentacle window on it and stuff like that. He decides to investigate and is greeted by a creepy kid looking for his sister while wearing what seems to be the same clothes as Friday, which should be a tip-off. Yeah, if, if that isn't a red flag, what happens next is definitely a red flag. But I mean, he doesn't even really even get a chance to respond or be like, actually, I'm going to go. Because as soon as he shows up, this kid morphs into this some kind of toothy starfish headed monster. Oh, God. Ugh. Like his just like the bottom parts of a starfish covered in teeth comes flying out of his head. Gets a big, weird, toothy beak for flesh beak, I guess. Whatever. Anyway, this takes us to a... Fl- he Friday asks what the hell is, is going on here. And this takes us to a flashback within a flashback. As the monster explains that he's a demon summoned by some dumb cultist. And he's called uh, Ashkenoth of the Hierarchies. The demon, of course, managed to kill himself and or managed to free himself and kill the cultists and now delights in the butchers of very in the butchering of various passerbys in any number of horrifying ways and this one and this one actually fits into the believe it or not this one actually fits into the whole uh theme of this year book yeah i mean it, he does kind of see himself as create because he's because he's a sculptor <laughs> Yeah, as creating art and stuff. So I guess it does, yeah, it does kind of, it does fit in, I suppose, that sort of flesh museum or whatever. Friday has no intention of joining the demon, but it doesn't look good. He sort of like shoots him up and the demon's just like, yes, your bullets do nothing, but please walk through my house and enjoy my museum of death. Friday moves to the house from one terrifying room to another, all just full of various atrocities and murderous things and just weirdness, like kids playing hot potato with a bloody package or something, and like, you know, Ashkenoth taking over their forms and taunting Friday as things get weird and gross. Um eventually culminating as the demon starts showing off its various, like terrifying mishmashes of human forms like and finally becomes just this like this statement piece like that one thing where the um i forget what it was called the bad guy in indigo prime kind of revealed itself this big starfish like starfish shaped head of a monster with limbs made of human beings and heads and spines and faces and arms and stuff all over the place it's oh yeah lots of teeth and eyes also real gross real terrifying chris vestige was the best monsters he really does absolutely yeah so friday attacks this monster but then falls to the library below as the unspeakable horror kind of drips down and starts to engulf him but suddenly, I I don't I didn't I didn't really get why this happened. I suppose, but I'll explain it. I'll explain what should done with the synopsis. Oh, pl- okay, great. So a bunch of uh of the zombie bodies of Ashkenoth's victims um come into the room where Friday's being engulfed and start to eat the form of the demon, and soon. All it can do is try to reform itself as the demon, as the uh, as its victims consume it. And in this confusion, Friday manages to escape 
as um, Ashkenoth is consumed by its own victims, including the got the men who summoned it initially, I guess. Um, Friday runs out of the house, I guess, triggering an explosive sort of by instinct as he goes, blowing up the house behind him as he walks away, of course, not looking back at the explosion. And I like this actually, this final line as he walks as he walks away from this horror of screams and fire and cooked meat. It's where it says, uh, somewhere up ahead, a new day's waiting, and he heads straight for it. I think that's a that's a cool opening line or or ending line of this story. So what happened at the end was uh, the Ashkenoff or whatever his name is was torturing uh, Friday, okay, and he was torturing him so much he was not paying attention to his own zombies. So his hold on the zombies kind of slipped smaller and smaller until the zombies just started eating him instead of Friday. And of course, because they're zombies, they just start eating themselves until Friday just says screw it and blows up the entire house with them in it. Oh, that's just poor zombie management. You know, you gotta you gotta keep an eye on those zombies you know come on you got a lot you've got so many eyes you couldn't keep one on the zombies <laughs> if, if, if there is one little problem with John Smith's reign as he does seem to have a lot of anticlimaxes in his stories no, that's, that's fair a lot of like a lot of kind of anticlimactic ends in this story I guess I don't know just sort of like I barely survived or by some trick I survived or something I mean it took me like five reads of it to realise that's exactly what had happened <laughs> yeah a lot of setups that are then quickly resolved yeah, yeah, you're there for the setup not so much the resolution I guess mm-hmm Fair enough. Yeah. And so after that, we got just a green page with credits. And then, I, you know, speaking of surviving, we've survived the 1993 yearbook. Whoa. And with that, I must know what are your top and bottom thrills for this yearbook? Well, uh, let's do bottom first because I think top is pretty obvious. So bottom was really difficult for me because there was quite a few poor stories in this one. <laughs> but and I know it feels like it's punching down on it, but I really don't care. It's Robo Hunter. I really do not like Robo. That's incarnation of Robo Hunter. I really do not like it. That's fair. <laughs> I do not get how a human and a robot mated made that thing. I don't know, as you said, why it's called a succubus. I don't get the real tones of the story. I just do not get it at all. Mm-hmm. No, I mean I I agree certainly. But I, I, but I. But as for top, well, we just read it. It's definitely the Rogue <laughs> Trooper does Indigo Prime story because that is so my jam. The art is magnificent. The story, as you said, does have a bit of an anti-climax, but before that, it is just really, really good. I will admit it has no business in a Rogue Trooper story, but it is still really, really good. I really like it. So, so what is yours? Because I don't think you'll probably have the same as me. I mean, I'll certainly join you with um, with Robo Hunter as my bottom. Like, whatever, that's fine. It's not really. I don't like you. I don't. I'm not a huge fan of this uh, incarnation of Robo Hunter. So it's like I'll have. I happily take it as a whipping boy. Like it's fine with me. Um, yeah, I thought the Rogue Trooper story was what you know definitely did the John Smith stuff and Chris Weston stuff. It's trying to do absolutely. Um, I don't know if it was quite for me. I think I might. Hmm. I'm tempted by the Judge Dredd story just because I like alternate reality stuff. Yep. And the Batman Judge Dredd helmet I thought was like a really funny thing. 
But I think I'm I'm going to go with Durham Red this time, actually. I like this Durham Red story. It was a good throwback. Um, I like the idea of, like, I like a fight in a theme park that uses all the rides and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, Ascara's Durham Red, always easy on the eyes and always a fun character to just have running around killing people. Like, that's just a, a fun popcorn thrill, I guess. That would have been my second choice. So yeah, that's a very good choice. Because yeah, and I do really like that. It felt like you know a, a classic story that just hadn't been like a classic script that just hadn't been um, done yet, or something like that. Like if you you know this easily could like, like we said, this easily could have been like a classic red uh, uh, strontium dog story, and that's very high praise uh, for me at least, just in terms of you know what these how I like these stories and stuff like that. All right. Awesome. I hope everybody enjoyed the show. As always, you can find Space Spinner 2000 on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, the Google Play Store, Spotify, or our podcast site, spacespinner2000.com. Feel free to contact us at spacespinner2000 at gmail.com. On the 2080 forums or on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages on Twitter, we're at Space Spinner 2K for everything else. Space Spinner 2000, and we should be there. And hey, if you're you know listening to us and enjoying the show and want to drop us a review or uh, anything else, we'd really appreciate it. This show is brought to you by Steve Green, Zane Kipmiller, Robert Hardingham, and your friends at the 2080 Forums. If you'd like to join them and help support the show, we'd appreciate it. Check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Cradaline. That's our podcast network. There you can receive a ton of extra rewards, including advanced episodes. And then, um, Dave the Monarch, where can we find you on the internet if you'd like to be found? Well, I am as well. I am as I said the last time on the last episode. I am on the. I am part of the Jaded Desktop uh, Let's Play group. We are currently working our way through Odin Sphere. It is a very good game. It is a very very good game, and nothing to do with me. But I do want to give a shout out to Sonic the Comic the Podcast because obviously this uh, this was my last two thousand AD yearbook because I jumped ship to Sonic Comics, so, and that podcast is fantastic, so I want to give that a little shout out, and I, I, I'll give you a link to it, and obviously, obviously there's loads of other podcasts like Where Eagles Dance, uh, stuff like that, but we all know about those, but I really want to give a shout out to Sonic Comic Podcast. Oh cool, okay, I'll, I'll link both those in the show notes for sure. Great. Yeah, fantastic. Alright, um, and then check out, okay, so, and then come back later this week as we'll be looking at the 1993 Judge Dredd yearbook with some Britsit-themed stories and new installments of a bunch of uh, magazine stories as well, like you said, the uh, the Final Soul Sisters and Straight Jacket Fits, among others. Then come back next Monday as we have another big relaunch of 2000 AD as Dredd fights a Cursed Earth, Mar- Cursed Earth Marshal. We'll continue Xanathan Robo Hunter and start a pair of long-awaited sequels as Luke Kirby, the Nightwalker, and Flesh, Legend of Shamana begin. Until then, I'm Cotter and Dave. We are Facebook 2000. Splendid, Splendid Perfect. Perfect.